Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out. My name's Noah, you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you probably know me as Twelve Tone. And today we're going to talk about musicians as activists. You know, how that space gets navigated, how it should be navigated, with obviously a giant asterisk after should, because, you know, we're just two doofuses with a podcast and you shouldn't be listening to anything we say. Obviously, that's always true, but that feels worth being especially explicit about here. But yeah, do you want to kick this off? Yeah, well, I guess I just want to, like, acknowledge the fact that there's kind of a number of different things that we can be talking about when we talk. In classic Ghost Notes fashion, um, we're kicking off with... uh, (laughs) Semantics. Let's define some terms. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But essentially, because in my mind, like there are um, musicians, I think what comes to mind most of all is there are musicians who kind of primarily do their quote unquote activism through music. But then there's also the kind of, and there's overlap between these things, but then there's also yeah. like the, you know, Bono's of the world where Bono does have some political music, but most of his activism is kind of its own thing separate from that. Yeah. There's ebb and flow and conversation between those two and one always informs the other. For sure. And I think one thing that I, I did want to clarify that I forgot to, uh, but just I think we're on the same page here, but just for everyone listening I want to be clear that we're talking specifically about artists like intentionally being political, right? Just sort of like skirt around the issue of the all art is political question. Like we don't, that's probably a different episode and we can do that episode eventually. We almost certainly will, but like that's not this episode. We're talking about, you know, people doing activism stuff purposefully and sort of putting themselves in that space, not, you know, making like art that you can then go and read as yeah 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 well i was just going to kind of ask like what is it that kind of you know uh made you want to talk about this topic because it was one that you brought up yeah so i think this is something that i wanted to talk about because i've gone through a lot of different opinions on this over the years and i'm still not sure that i've really settled into like a coherent complete philosophy on the subject but i think For me, the sort of, what I've come to realize is that this evolving set of opinions I've had has been driven by two competing underlying principles. Okay. And the first of which is that, you know, we know from experience and from a lot of research that just telling people the facts doesn't really change their minds. We know that art and storytelling are really important in pushing for good and making good societal changes, and that therefore if you're in a position to do that sort of thing, it makes a lot of sense to do that. But on the other hand, the other principle that sort of pulls me back on this is that I'm just very innately suspicious of people who get a lot of power and influence by showing proficiency in one field, wielding that power and influence in a completely unrelated one, right? Yeah. So like, I think of like, uh, this review, I mean, I'm getting my Jackson Brown reference out early this podcast, but um, there was a review that I was reading of Jackson Brown's Time the Conqueror, where the reviewer was basically saying uh, he needs to spend less time focusing on his enlightened perspective and more on what made it seem like he had one in, his, in the first place, his incredible arrangements. And like, Jackson Brown's arrangements were not because he had good politics, right? Yeah. Like, 
I mean, I think it it is worth acknowledging that both can be true. Like in the case yeah. of someone like Tom Morello, like Tom Morello yeah. is somebody who um, is very political in his music and also has a degree in political science from Harvard. Yeah. Um, so oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like I, and this, I did not, I didn't think you were saying this, but I wanted to make it clear that I, I think another, another aspect where I tend to push back on, um, that kind of criticism, cause I think it's valid, but I also yeah. think kind of part of the, you know, promise of democracy is that anybody can comment on politics, right? Like that's kind of the yeah. whole point of democracy. And obviously there are people that are more and less educated and there are people that you get into dangerous stuff when, you know, the lines between commenting and spreading disinformation are blurred. Like that can be very dangerous. Yeah. But I do think that artists, like I do think that artists who exist in a democratic society by virtue of that society should have right to comment on its governance. Like, I think that's kind of the, sure. the social contract of democracy. Sure. The, the thing I'd say in response though, is that speech from a platform isn't just speech. Yes. Right? Yes. That like, is correct. You and I, for instance, have the attention and the ears of hundreds of thousands of people not necessarily on this podcast. I have no idea what our listenership is, but on our YouTube channels, we can push some ideas to a very like large audience very quickly. And I think that because of that, you and I have an obligation that we both take seriously to make sure that the things we're saying aren't like off the cuff. They're they're well researched. Yes. They're well reasoned. Yeah. That we have good reason to believe that they are good and valid arguments that are doing good by putting them out in the world. Whereas, you know, if you and I, once we turn the mics off and we're just chatting, like I would feel much more comfortable expressing whatever political opinions I happen to have. But when I look at what I'm doing with my platform, what I'm doing in ways that could influence my audience, I feel like there are obligations there. And I feel like sort of the idea that, oh, it's just speech sort of falls apart for me because of the the influence that that speech can have. I think the platform thing is interesting because I think I come at, at it from two angles where there's the responsibility, like there's the obligation to, you know, be informed on your platform. But I also, I'm of the belief kind of morally that if you have yeah. a platform and you see something that you believe to be injustice, that you have some degree of responsibility, not Always, you don't need to, you know, your platform doesn't need to be a full propaganda engine. But I do believe yeah. that there is a moral responsibility and culpability that comes with power and the power that a platform has to, you know, use that platform to comment on things sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's like my uncle used to tell me before I got bitten by a spider. Yeah. With great <laughs> power comes great responsibility. Exactly. Which, again, this is the double-edged sword of this whole musicians and in general kind of broader speaking artists as activists business. Yeah, I think the double-edged sword is a really great way of thinking about it. It's just that like you have this responsibility to make the world a better place if you can and you also have this responsibility to not make the world a worse place and it can be hard to identify in the moment which of those you're doing. Yes. When you're sort of reacting and so like 
part of it is like, I look at like an artist like Tom Morello and I have no issue with Tom Morello taking political stances, right? I yeah. think part of how Rage Against the Machine rose to prominence was through their politics, right? Like they also had killer riffs and great music, but- You can also like look into the, their lyrics are well-researched, yeah. kind of well-thought-out political stances. You don't need to agree with them uh, I mean, I do tend to agree with him, but you don't yeah. need to agree with him to acknowledge that, like, Zach de la Rocha is well-read in political theory. Yeah. As as a counter, like, I think back to, like, the mid to late 2000s, where they're, like, every new metal band yeah. felt like they had to put out some anti-Bush protest song. And, like, some of them are very good, but, like, you look at something like Disturbed's Deify and, like, I don't care what David Draymond thinks about George Bush. Like, I happen to agree with him in a lot of ways, but, like, I don't think that my opinion of George Bush should be influenced by the guy who wrote Dropping Plates, right? Yeah. Like, that's not that's not why I, like, like what David Draymond is doing and why I like what Disturbed is doing. And so it's it's hard for me to... and But on the other hand, it, because it does have an influence, it then becomes somewhat of a problem. Even the problem that I see is, like, well, I get I get nervous about talking about precedent because there's only a certain extent to which precedent actually matters, right? Like, yeah. if I could convince all of the musicians whose politics I agree with to stop making political statements when they haven't done all the research, that wouldn't change the actions of all the musicians I don't agree with. So it's, it's not like that is necessarily a huge thing, but like, I, I guess it's less for me about what the musicians do because I, I agree to some extent, like they, they can do whatever they want. But I think... It's more for me about how I react to it and how I would like audiences to react to it. And I think that I don't want to imply that there's no like incredulity there, right? I don't want to imply that everyone who listens to Disturbed's DFI immediately decides that they agree with everything David Draymond is saying, right? That's not how humans work. But I think there should be some level of, I guess, introspection in terms of how the message resonates with you and whether or not it should be resonating with you and whether or not this is someone whose message you need to be listening to. And I keep dunking on David Draymond and that's not really fair. Like David Draymond, if you're listening, you can come on the show and defend yourself. Yeah. Come on the podcast, David Draymond. But like, it's just the example that came to mind. It's not like, yeah, it's not specifically a particularly bad song in any particular way. Like I said, if you go back and listen to them, like Linkin Park had Hands Held High, Otep had Warhead, Korn probably had something. System of a Down had their entire career. Yeah, yeah. But that's, again, sort of in that Rage Against the Machine yeah. space where it's just like, you know, or you look at even someone like Jackson Brown, who, like, early on he wasn't doing a lot of political stuff, but, like, he built the second act of his career as a political activist in ways that I think make me take his political stances more seriously than I would if he just released just one of those songs in the middle of his run of like Saturate Before Using and For Every Man and Late for the Sky and stuff like that. I think that part of the reason, like something that we're kind of brushing around here is just like, like part of the reason why there was that kind of, you know, like new metal, you know, against Bush. And also like, it, it wasn't even yeah. just new metal. Like there's also a ton of alt rock at the time that was very anti-Bush and Green Day and stuff like that. Yeah. But is and that- M&M's mosh, of course. Yeah. Th- there's, there's this broad legacy 
in rock music of rock music being a political vehicle, right? And it's yeah. kind of uh like like that's kind of canonized in our narrative of what rock and roll is and in general what a lot of popular music is that's birthed out of the 60s like it the first yeah. wave of rock and roll like no one was really calling like you know like Elvis was not a uh Elvis was not a political artist and even in like their yeah. their early days or I mean El Elvis was a political yeah. artist not an activist I would say right yeah. yeah again this comes down to yeah. intentional like little little richard's whole career was deeply political but yes. like yeah in ways that weren't explicit in the music. I mean, I think that I think that where it kind of comes from, and this is a bit of a pivot, but where it kind of comes from is specifically like Bob Dylan and generally yeah. the Greenwich Village folk scene. And that's really interesting because that lineage, the Greenwich Village lineage, you trace that back further. And that comes to people who were musicians as activists in a very real sense, like Woody yeah. Guthrie and Pete Seeger, who would go around and sing union songs to union workers, encouraging them to take political action. They, they were, like, I think a lot of the time when we talk about kind of activists in that, like, you know, anti-Bush way, and even in the, like, yeah. kind of, like, anti-Vietnam of the 60s, it's this very vague, like, almost like vibes-based activism, you know, where it's people who are yeah. like, you know, war is wrong or, you know, the president is bad. Whereas you listen to like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and <laughs> Phil Oaks and people like that. And they're yeah. like, they're like going around to workers saying, hey, here is how you can bargain, use collective action to bargain for better living conditions for yourselves. Like they were a yeah. very different kind of political and I mean, yeah, this machine kills fascists, yes, you know? Yes, exactly. Well, and and what's remained from that, what Rock took from yeah. that is the aesthetics of activism, which I think is yeah. something that's really, I've got a lot of thoughts about the aestheticization of activism in rock music. And I think that that's kind of a lot of what we're talking about with people that aren't necessarily, you know, aren't necessarily equipped to talk about this stuff or for lack of a better yeah. word, a, a lot of that is that they are attracted to the aesthetics of activism without actually doing the kind of get your hands yeah. dirty on the ground mutual aid that is necessary for activism. Yeah, I mean, if you were active in liberal spaces in the mid to late 2000s, like it was super cool to not like George W. Bush for good reasons. Yes. For good reasons, to be clear. But it became a thing where, you know, if, if your favorite band or band you like put out like this song that was like, George Bush is bad, you could be like, haha, yes. And then you'd buy the album. But like, I, th I think an interesting sort of follow up to sort of the Greenwich Village scene uh, in terms of rock's history of activism is punk. Yes. Right. Like, I think if you look at punk, like especially like early punk, a lot of it was less sort of explicit about like the steps you were supposed to, you know, or, you know, it wasn't like, here's how you form a union, blah, blah, yeah. blah. It was really channeling a legitimate anger and a yes. legitimate like rage at like conditions and the working conditions of the youth in Britain and the U S and. Especially, I mean, I think, I think it's interesting because when you look at early punk, you've kind of got two things going on simultaneously where you have people like the clash who are like yeah. expressly kind of political driven. 
And then you have people like the Sex Pistols, where the Sex Pistols didn't have politics. Like the Sex Pistols sang yeah. anarchy in the UK, but didn't actually believe in anarchist theory or anything. Like their politics no. were just the politics of broad rebellion, which again, there's a value there, but I would call them not really activists in our sense, in the sense yeah. that we're using. But then, you know, Black Flag, well, The Clash, like uh, especially Black Flag and Dead Kennedys, like the hardcore scenes were very political in the 80s. Yeah, and I mean, I think the Sex Pistols and that that whole side of the movement is interesting in this, again, because of sort of the aestheticization of uh, rebellion and of uh, activism and politicization as a way of making your voices heard without necessarily saying specific things, if that makes sense. Yeah. But like, I, I'm actually like, I'm working right now, uh, as it turns out, on a video about the aesthetic of volume in metal. Yeah. And one of the things I talk about in there is that sound and the ability to make sound are not neutral. They are political. And so if you look at like the volume of metal or especially the volume of punk, like these are in a way political statements in and of themselves. And again, that I'm starting to skirt back to the all art is political thing because I can't help myself. But I think that in the case of punk and in the case of, you know, this stuff, it, it's very intentional. Yeah. Like it's very intentional to have that level of volume and to be loud and to be, again, to assert yourself as being heard. And so... I think that, well, it's true that the, you know, the Sex Pistols weren't advocating specific anarchist theory or anything. Like, I, I do think that the way they presented themselves yeah. was intended to be a political statement as well. It, wasn't, it was just that that statement wasn't necessarily, like, a guided path of how they wanted the world to function. It was more just a, hey, you need to be paying attention to us, which I think is legitimate, right? Like, when we yeah. talk about protesting like some of the time that's trying to make a specific statement to push for a specific policy but sometimes it's just like hey there are issues that are being ignored and you need to stop ignoring them i think where i struggle uh and i think about this a lot is like what is the actual you know like in terms of improving people's material conditions what is the function of that because i think there's a yeah. lot of high-minded romanticism around like oh, you know, like we're changing the culture. And like, there are definitely yeah. cultural shifts, but one of my favorite quotes, there's this quote by Kurt Vonnegut about like art protest in the Vietnam War. And it goes like this. During the Vietnam War, every respectable artist in this country was against the war. It was like a laser beam. We were all aimed in the same direction. The power of this weapon turns out to be that of a custard pie dropped from a stepladder six feet high. <laughs> And I always think that that's a, like, very kind of tragically accurate assessment of the situation when it comes to this sort of thing, where it's like, yeah, ultimately, like, is that cultural energy the best use of time and resources where, and I don't, I don't have an answer to this because I think that music is yeah. important on this, but ultimately it's like, it does kind of feel, it does feel a little flat to me when you're like, oh, you know, well, we're out here changing hearts and minds and people are starving on the streets, you know, and people are no, being yeah, massacred. I, and like, it's, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a dangerous path to go down because I think it allows artists, myself included, I consider yeah. myself among these 
political artist, but it allows us to kind of pat ourselves on the back while still staying in our relatively comfortable realm of not actually getting our hands dirty. Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying and I don't disagree. And it's obviously complicated because we can't go back and run the experiment of seeing what would have happened if there was more public support for the Vietnam War instead. Like we we can, we have no idea if the war would have lasted longer if that was the situation. But I do think rhetoric matters. Yeah. Uh, I think that like, I I assume you're familiar with the concept of the Overton window? Yes. Yeah, naturally. Is that, yeah. yeah, okay. So just for everyone listening who's not, the Overton window is basically the range of political opinions that it is safe for an elected official to hold and like safe and reasonable that you could argue for without being laughed out of office and without losing access to power. And I think that one of the major successes, and this is getting way outside of music and like I am getting a little bit anxious that this is maybe not like our area of expert, or at least my area of expertise enough to really talk with authority about, but I'm going to do it anyway, because it's a podcast. Uh, But take everything that I have ever said and will ever say in my entire (laughs) life with a grain of salt. But like one of the major successes of the modern fascist movement is shifting the Overton window and making it sort of acceptable to publicly hold a lot of explicitly fascist positions by just selling them as, you know, oh, just, you know, asking questions or just pushing a debate. And so, like, having that space to make those arguments means that you can then influence people in power and people can get into power while holding those beliefs. And in the same way, I think pushing specific or pushing rhetorics of sort of explicitly leftist ideas can also shift that Overton window in a direction that is maybe better. I mean, again, like, depends on the specific ideas, but. I think the optimistic reading of the kind of like hippie movement in that era of protest is that, while it might not have stopped the Vietnam War, it did a lot for sexual politics and gender politics, which was another facet of it. And you really did see a lot of that, like, progress in the 70s. I mean, in very flawed ways, like there's a lot of issues with second wave feminism, but also there were a lot of good came out of second wave feminism as well. And that kind of has its roots in the sexual revolution. And that is something that is kind of intrinsically tied to that whole artistic movement. Yeah. And I mean, again, like we can't go back and run the experiment, but the Vietnam War did end. Yes. And it wasn't because the US won. It was because we pulled out. Yes. And there's legitimate questions of like, to the extent to which like massive public disapproval of the war influenced that. And whether if that hadn't happened, they would be willing to send a bunch more troops over there to die. Like, I don't know. I, again, we can't go back in time and run the experiment, but go ahead. I think the thing with that, that I would kind of say that's kind of a point against that is like, you know, the height of the countercultural movement against the Vietnam War was the summer of love in 67 or maybe Woodstock in 69. And the Vietnam War lasted until 1973, right? Like it was, it was, you know, well past its due date when that happened. But again, we don't know. We, yeah, there's, there's no counterfactual there. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not claiming that that was the major reason or anything to be clear. Like there's, 
historical events are complicated and it's hard to pin down specific factors because again we can't run controlled trials i think i think there is actually though a situation and i'm working on a video of, about this right now so it's actually very timely that we're recording this episode but there is a situation where you can pretty tangibly say that music was used as activism and made a like clear distinct political change and that is the singing revolution in Estonia. Do you know about the singing revolution? I do not. So essentially, so Estonia, I mean, all of this I'm going to say in my video, uh, but also I'm yeah. half Estonian. So it's uh, it, this is kind of my cultural heritage uh, in, yeah. in a way. But essentially, in short, like toward the end of the, like as the Soviet Union was kind of crumbling, Estonia gained its independence from the Soviet Union completely peacefully with a series of singing protests, essentially. Estonia has this rich culture of folk song, and in several protest incidents, thousands, hundreds of thousands, well, tens of thousands, and at one point, 100,000 Estonians would kind of spontaneously gather and sing folk songs. And eventually that pressure allowed for a, basically a bloodless exit from the Soviet Union. And it's called the singing revolution. It's a really, really interesting hmm. thing. But what, what I find, especially in this conversation, really kind of compelling about it is that so often when we talk about kind of musicians as activists, our mind kind of you know, like immediately goes to, you know, like rock and roll and punk and yeah, hip hop. Celebrity and, musicians. Yeah. When in reality, like the singing revolution in my mind is probably the single most like clear depiction that we have in history of the tangible effects that song can have. And it's folk music. Yep. And the reason why it was folk music is because that was fundamental to the nature of the revolution because that was the unifying cornerstone of Estonian national identity was folk music. So in that sense, there is this clear kind of tie there. I actually think even when you look at like Woody Guthrie and, you know, the folk songs with the labor movements around the turn of the century, like I think folk music generally actually has a lot more power because what it really can do is it can display solidarity very clearly, you know, and it can yeah. show people what they have in common with each other. And that creates a rallying point. Yeah. I think that highlights an important distinction that I hadn't previously thought all that much about, but that is as, as you're laying it out, clearly very important, which is uh, the distinction between musicians as activists and music as activism. Mm. Mm -hmm. And sort of, I think that the way I've been conceptualizing this is very sort of about celebrity, but, and I think that there you have a lot of questions about like what celebrities should be doing with their platform, what they should be doing with their influence. But there's also this other aspect of just music as a social phenomenon, as a cultural object that, again, because cultures are political, can easily be used as a political statement yes. in ways that don't necessarily have to do with that celebrity platform because they're, and again, folk music ties in really well with this. I think a lot of hip hop does as well, especially yeah. sort of more early hip hop before 
the mainstreaming of hip hop. Like I would also say, like, like before you get too into that, this is a whole yeah. topic for a whole other day. But I think there's a good argument to be made that early hip hop is folk music. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, early hip hop is absolutely a folk tradition. Yeah. But I think anyways, that is fairly clear. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think that it just has this way of bringing people together and bringing one one of the big things that music can do is just bring joy and solace to communities that are oppressed and that changes the morale and changes the ability to continue fighting to change conditions. Yes. Because that I, I, yeah, that's morale is I think often an overestimated thing in these things, but it's certainly a real factor. I think another another example of that as well, um, kind of in the same lineage of hip hop, um, is uh, like the staple singers singing yeah. for Martin Luther King, and you know, like we shall overcome. And in general, gospel music, which again a folk tradition, yeah. has meant a lot for civil rights movements in the states throughout the years. Like gospel music is really, really important to the civil rights tradition and in a very similar way where, yeah, it is often it is that kind of the moment of release, you know, or yeah. the the morale booster. Like, I think this is something that I I go back and forth on this all the time because part of me does say, you know, like ultimately like the people that really make change are activists on the ground doing stuff and yeah. organizing people. But I also think the the reality of activism is that activism is a broad network where activism works best when a bunch of people with a bunch of different talents are applying their talents in the right way in a unified fashion. And a lot of the time, the talents of artists are less tangible. But the reality is, like, you know, at the end of the day, after going out to a protest or often at a protest, you know, people will keep spirits high with music. And you see, like, uh, yeah. you know, Kendrick Lamar's All Right is the anthem of the Black Lives Matter movement. And that is, like, that clearly means a lot and provides a lot of value to people who are on the ground protesting. Yeah, and I think uh, I was actually going to bring up Kendrick Lamar fairly soon anyway, because when we're talking about hip-hop and gospel, that brings up an important point to me, which is that there are also different kinds of political, right? Yes. Like, I talked before about, so the idea of people gaining, rising to gaining power and influence with in one area and then using that uh, in another area. But when you look at things like, you know, Kendrick Lamar speaking on the black experience in America in songs like All Right, like that's his own lived experience. Yep. That's not like, that's a real thing that he's been through and he understands. And so like, even if the music that I, that he had come up with like, early on had nothing to do with any of that, like I would reasonably assume that he had some level of understanding and some capacity to speak I, on those issues in ways that I might not necessarily assume of someone like, I don't know, to pick a random name, Michael Buble. Yes. Which I, to the best of my knowledge, have never seen Michael Buble. I, I don't know why I grabbed that <laughs> name specifically, but anyway. I would also, I also think that that's something that can be said about a lot of punk music too, because a lot of punk yeah. music is music with a class consciousness made by people in the working class, and especially yeah. the 80s hardcore punk stuff, is people 
in a in a working class that they have witnessed being destroyed by Reaganism and Thatcherism. Uh, like I yeah. I think I think that that's another situation where yeah, that's a really good point that the the lived experience really in a lot of situations lived experience is your qualification for being an activist if you're yeah. advocating for improving the material quality of the lives of people who share your lived experience. Yeah, and I think that that gets a little complicated because I don't want to imply that like if you get famous or successful or have access to a platform, you're only allowed to try to help people yeah. who look like you or grew up like you. Like that's that's a weird essentialist stance to take and it's not the stance I'm taking. Uh, but I, I think that like, again, we, we talked about sort of being informed and I think that when you're coming from that background, when you're coming from that lived experience of, you know, in, in the case of punk, like the British working class in the 80s, or in the case of like Kendrick Lamar and hip hop of the black American experience in the 80s, 90s, and so on. Like these give you those qualifications kind of automatically, but that doesn't mean you can't learn about other issues. You can't yeah. educate yourself on other issues. You can't take other issues seriously. Like I, I just I want to be clear on that point because that, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah, no, well, it's... Again, like it's such a delicate balance because yeah. I would also say that like I think lived experience is incredibly valuable, but I yeah. also think often with a lot of the best artists like Kendrick, like Kendrick is singing about his own lived experience, but he's also clearly framing it within a broader political yeah. realm and that involves political research and knowledge that he clearly has i mean oh absolutely like yeah. a lot of a lot of um especially on like to pimp a butterfly like a lot of that was inspired by a trip he took to south africa and like visiting nelson mandela's jail cell and like learning about how mandela did his activism and stuff like that like those were all kind of learning experiences for Kendrick that were big influences on the album. And and I think that yeah. that's, um, yeah, like I think it's kind of, you you can have both. And often I think the, uh, yeah. often I think the most kind of impactful art is people that have both. That's someone that like, both, yeah. yeah, like Run the Jewels are fantastic for that, right? Where like Run the Jewels, um, like Killer Mike especially, like, clearly has the lived experience of, you know, growing up poor and black in Atlanta, but also, like, in his middle age has become uh, a real, like, active political advocate and, like, you know, like, campaigned with Bernie Sanders and stuff like that. And there is yeah. that level of, like, expertise in in that front. Absolutely. And I think that one thing that I don't necessarily want to go too deep on, but I think is worth acknowledging because this was something we were talking about when uh, with Foreign in... Yes. Was that the last episode? I think that was the last yeah. episode. But it's sort of the... That when we... Especially from the outside, when we try and talk about lived experience, it can be very easy to sort of turn that into a monolith, right? We can talk about yeah. like the black American experience, but America is huge. Yeah. And there are tons of different cities and tons of different like classes that black people could have grown up in. And those are lots of different potential experiences and none of them are more or less valid. I'm not, Yeah, I am certainly not in a position to make any claim like that, but 
it, it does mean that there are potential differences in that experience. And that's that's a good thing. That means that you can get more nuance, but you have to listen for that nuance. I think that also brings me to one kind of uh, like musician as activist that I think is really interesting. That is, you saw it a lot more in kind of the first half of the century, um, especially for a lot of black American artists where we are still well within the first half of the century. Oh, Noah. sorry, the first half of last <laughs> century, where you saw with a lot of jazz artists, and you saw it with like Nina Simone and stuff like that, yeah. where their activism was being explicitly brilliant. You know, like yeah. in a world, in a society that you know didn't believe in black excellence, like like Nina Simone's like to be young, gifted, and black is kind of all about that right it's almost the yeah for a miles davis or a john coltrane or a duke ellington like being black and making the most incredible art of the age that was in and of itself a piece of activism because it was kind of going directly against the perceptions of you know what black people were capable of and what black art was capable of being yeah, and what spaces black people were allowed to occupy. Like yes. A lot of that, there's still a lot of racism today, but if you look back at the early 20th century, there were just a lot of buildings and a lot of organizations that just didn't let black people be in them. And so going and performing in those clubs as a black person was a significant act of yes. political activism yeah. Duke Ellington, in and of itself. Uh, Duke Ellington yeah. at the Cotton Club especially yeah, is a fantastic example of that where like Duke Ellington regularly played the Cotton Club, which, like you said, was a um, segregated venue. Yeah, this isn't necessarily something that I feel like I have enough expertise to talk that much more deeply about. So it might be good to sort of steer in another direction here unless you have something more to say. Because I don't want to don't want to be two white people talking about the black experience. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's I think, you know. Again, it's important if you're to- going to be doing this stuff to do the reading, and I've done some reading, but I don't want to yeah. pretend that I've done enough reading, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's just, yeah. I think what one of the figures that, again, I mentioned earlier, but one of the most interesting figures to me in the musicians as activists is Dylan, because yeah. Dylan's early work was so incredibly, like, political, and Dylan, like, he literally, like, marched with Martin Luther King, but also like a lot of him as a person and his kind of like interpretations of his own music. It's very weird to hear him kind of talk about it and see how he interacted with that idea of him because he was kind of always just like, I'm just making songs like that. That was kind of always his approach but he is almost like almost the blueprint for the, you know, radical activist musician. So it's yeah. a really he he fits into this conversation in a very strange sort of way. Yeah, I think I think that sort of comes to the the question of intentionality. Yeah. Like to what extent and also specifically with Dylan, 
to what extent do we believe his yes. intentionality? Yeah. Right? Like to to what extent is him just being like, I'm just writing songs, an actual reflection of what he was doing. Yeah, you that's know? that's the like, big thing with Dylan is with, I with Dylan specifically, it's it's hard to know. I don't trust a goddamn thing Dylan has ever said. <laughs> <laughs> but like I but in general, like I, I think that this again to to the lived experience point, like a lot of times people in marginalized groups, people being oppressed, like just describing their like circumstances, describing their lives, describing their lived experience is comes across as activism and is activism and is a statement in ways that, you know, people like uh, people who aren't in those positions can just cannot even singing about like love. It can be a political statement in, you know, depending on who's, I'm gonna, God, I was going to say who's doing the loving, but that sounds so weird. But you know you know what I mean. I mean, like, love as a political statement, uh, that's, like, so present in a lot of early disco music that was, like, kind of yeah. explicitly um, queer music. And disco yeah. music was music just broadly about sex, right? Um, yeah. And it was about sex, and it was about sex by a group of people who were marginalized primarily on the grounds of who they had sex with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think with the Dylan figures, like I think something that is a danger of the musician activist as well is getting too caught up in for people like you and I, and I'm definitely like, yeah, I'm definitely, you know, as I do this as much as anybody does, but getting caught up in the musicians and in doing so kind of forgetting the real activists doing work around the musicians and forgetting the ways that you can support that activism. Because like, there's definitely a degree to which if a musician is very explicitly political, buying a record of theirs can feel like it is, you know, political action feel like it is an activist thing and like to some degree it is supporting that person yeah but in reality like no will be more supportive is probably donating that money to an activist charity like you know that works for the same cause and understands how to allocate those resources and stuff like that. Yeah. You can still buy the album. Yes. Like it, yeah. To, to be clear, this, this isn't saying don't buy the album. Yes. But I think that, like... Don't just buy the album is what it's saying. Yeah. I think the extent to which, like, I would argue that there is some level of activism, and I'm being very hand-wavy about this on purpose, to be clear, but I think that you know, when we talk, again, to go back to Overton Windows, like, if the record industry, if the music industry thinks that bands like Rage Against the Machine sell, yeah, that means more bands like Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. It doesn't just mean Rage Against the Machine gets more money, it means that they go look for the next Rage Against the Machine. And that's, you know, that's a very minor thing, right? Like, that's not, I'm not saying that that is anywhere near as efficient as you know, going and donating to an organization if you want to make a change. But like, yeah, there is an extent to which there is some victory if you can push the people who have the power to control the general national dialogue or general cultural dialogue to support 
art that is in the direction that you think is good. Yeah. It's a very marginal difference compared to, you know, just donating to an organization. Yeah, I think I think it is it is useful and it can be great, but yeah. just it shouldn't be kind of it's, yeah, it shouldn't be your only activism. Yeah. And that yeah, I, th- I think is sort of where I get to to come back to what I was saying about like getting suspicious of musicians as activists, especially again to be a little more specific in this sort of celebrity-based music industry, right? Yes. Like not so much about folk, not so much about that, but it's very, like you said, very easy to feel like you are making a statement by supporting an artist. And you are, but it's not as loud a statement as you think. And it's not as loud a statement as you can do. And it's easy to sort of overestimate. I think the word I'm looking for here, or the term I'm looking for here, is uh, moral licensing, mm-hmm. which gets talked about a lot in sort of activism and charity circles where doing a thing that you know is good and that you believe to be making the world a better place can sort of give you license to not do as much else. Yeah. And so it's important to understand the extent to which the things you are doing make a good, make a positive difference, make the world a better place. Because if you are overestimating that by being like, oh, well, I listen to Rage Against the Machine and System of a Down all the time, and so I am doing my part... And like I have American Idiot on replay, even though you know yeah. George Bush hasn't been president for over a decade, but they're still a good album. Yeah. American Idiot is a great album, but like it, I think that it's very easy to overattach. And I, again, like I am fairly confident, just knowing myself and knowing human psychology, that I will overattach the value and the good that I'm doing by having this conversation yeah. right now. Yeah that I will use this as a tool for moral licensing in the future to allow myself to not care about other things. And I, I can don't feel love myself, myself doing it as we speak. <laughs> yeah. I can feel this feeling like I'm making a difference. Yes. But I'm not like, if, if you're listening to this and like, you know, I hope you care about some of the stuff we've said, but you know, it, it's not like I'm making the world that much better of a place by yeah. doing this compared to like just donating to charities which I also do, like I yeah. to be clear, but the two you know. aren't mutually exclusive. But I no. think the problem too is that especially in these days where, you know, we live in a we live in a society. Um, but we live in a world no. where everything is kind of carefully crafted and marketed. Yeah. And like we live in this world of everything being PR. Um yeah. It becomes especially dangerous. We need to be especially critical and suspicious of musicians who are kind of brandishing the aesthetics of activism. Because, and I think some of them, I think some of them do have aspects that are activist and like stuff like that. But I also think often, you know, like the, the kind of like ultimate example of this is the, the, you know, like, Kendall Jenner Pepsi commercial, right? Like sure. that's yeah. that's the kind of, you know, yeah. hyper exaggerated version of the aestheticization of activism that happens a lot in the modern age. Yeah. And it I think speaks to a thing that you were talking about earlier, which is that like there's a lot of value in understanding and in educating yourself and being informed. Yeah. 
but that is not sufficient to actually do anything. Yes. <laughs> and that's where, like, I think a lot of it's very easy when, you know, you're all of your favorite artists are putting out these protest songs and you're, you're like vibing to them and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm with this. I agree with all this. Like it's, it's very easy to then take that and be like, okay, well I've done my part. Yeah. I've done the thing. I have cared. I have invested the time and energy into having opinions about this. And so we're good, right? Like the world's better now. Yeah, we and fixed again, poverty. Again, I say this with no judgment because I recognize it very much in myself as well. Yeah. Like, this is this is something that's very easy to do, and it's something that I, I try my best not to, but I am not going to pretend I am anywhere near perfect on that. But, like, I think that with, like, musicians as activists, especially sort of surface-level activism— Especially, you know, just the band that's normally doing apolitical stuff, just doing one anti-whatever song. Yeah. Or just, like, showing up and playing at a protest, like, or playing a show for whatever. You know, it's just, like, it feels like a very easy way to get credit. Yes. And that's what I'm concerned about is, like, again, this is hard because, like, I think they're— even if you're not making a huge difference, like it's better to make some difference than none, right? Oh, a hundred percent. So, you know, if if that action does make the world a better place, great. And but I think that when we talk about branding, it it's very easy to use that as a way to promote yourself more so than to promote the cause. Yeah. And this is again something that I'm guilty of. Like if you look at my work, like if you look at like it, it's very, like, I take political stances in my work and, like, I, I take them because I believe in them, right? I'm, I'm making arguments that I think matter, but I'm also getting a lot of credit from a lot of sort of, like, more leftist musical spaces Yes, for some pretty tepid takes, right? Some pretty basic human decency level stuff. Yeah. And that's, like... It rubs me the wrong way. Like, I feel like I don't deserve and shouldn't get credit for that. And by extension, other people who do the same thing shouldn't get credit for that. But, you know. It's very, like, I think I would be fine with getting the amount of credit that we get for it if other people doing more important work got the credit that they should be getting. Like, you know, like, right now, there's, you know, like, journalists like Jake Hanrahan on the ground in the Ukraine You know, like that is far more important than doing a video where you mentioned Ukraine and have, you know, a a link to a sponsorship or there's like, you know, like like Greta Thunberg is kind of far more important than, you know, whatever artist is going to release a environmental anthem every year from now on. Yep. There's, it's okay to credit people for doing this because it is important and it does, I think, I think through these conversations, we've established that it does have a role, but like there are policymakers pushing for change. There are on the ground activists pushing for change. There are journalists risking their life for this stuff. There are charities and nonprofits working themselves to the bone to try to, improve material conditions for people a little bit like yeah some of the love should be spread and uh, especially a lot of the money should be spread to things that aren't just you know 
things that help us yeah. feel good about ourselves. Yeah, like to the extent that you know, you or I, or like most musicians, I say most, I want to be clear, most, not all, but most musicians do much of anything. It's raise awareness and awareness is good, but I think, you know, it's, it's easy to fetishize awareness. Yes. And at some point, you know, like there's like, you know, prostate awareness day and like, we're, we're aware of prostate cancer. Like that everyone knows now we have to do something. Everyone's aware of world hunger, but awareness doesn't really yeah. do much to put food in bellies. Yeah. As we've talked about, like I think in other episodes, like making yourself and making people uncomfortable in order to can spurn action, right? Can make you more willing to take action because you, you know, it's easy to not think about world hunger, even yes. if you know about world hunger, right? Like it's easy to not really understand what it means that there are people out there with basically no access to food. Yeah. Like that that's it's if you've never been anywhere near that, like in terms of your own life, it's very easy to not truly understand how horrific that is. Like I am not going to pretend that I understand how yeah. horrific that is. I understand that it's horrific, but I've never been there. And so like it's easy for me to just be like, oh, they're hungry. I get hungry sometimes. I get a headache. But it's just like it's not that. Well, I think also like to that effect, it's also it's also very easy for, you know, a musician to be like, we're going to raise money to fight world hunger or something like that and say, yeah, like world hunger is such an easy target because it seems like it's such a like on the surface. It's like, oh, yeah, like nobody deserves to go hungry, but it's very easy to look at the aesthetics of being against hunger and not acknowledge the fact that there are giant logistical nightmares to yeah. distributing that food. And there are all sorts of political entities actively kind of working against distributing food to, you know, food insecure places. And there, I mean, even in the States, there are policies being passed yeah. as we speak that mean oh, like that are like gutting school lunch programs like Los Angeles hates its homeless people. Yeah. Like, I think that's another another one of the traps of yeah. musicians as activism is so often it's just kind of broadly like war is bad, hunger is yeah. bad, racism is bad. You mentioned sort of like raising money to fight world hunger and that brought up another really important point for me which is that you know Raising money for an idea is nothing, yes. right? You're raising money for an organization. And this is to sort of move it into an arena that I feel a little bit more comfortable speaking about. I'm autistic. Autism Speaks sucks. Yes. Every autistic adult hates Autism Speaks. They do not speak for us. They have no autistic people, or at least last I checked, had no autistic people in real positions of power. They are a garbage organization. They're Plenty of autistic people will describe them as a hate group. I am a little bit ambivalent on that for reasons I don't want to get into right now. But broadly speaking, they're not far off the mark. But like whenever you see like, oh, we're raising money for autism, it's always either Autism Speaks or an Autism Speaks associated charity. And there are other ones out there. ASIN, the Autism Self-Advocacy Network is great. But like they never get the thing because, you know, celebrities don't Again, this comes down to doing the research, putting in the legwork, making sure you actually understand yeah. the issue before you start getting involved. And for the most part, it's so much easier to assume that Autism Speaks is fine. And there's, there's these in all sorts of different areas. Again, I don't want to list too many specific examples because I'm not an expert in most of these areas. But like, if you're listening to this and you have a monthly donation to Autism Speaks, find find a different place yeah. to, to give that money, please. Thank you. Um, 
But like that sort of thing is so common because again, it's much more about looking like you're standing up for something, looking well, like you're taking a stand. It's taking the aesthetic of activism much more so than worrying about whether you're actually making a difference or a positive difference anyway. And I think that's you know often a big difference you can see between like musicians who do the more vague stuff and like you know like your Kendrick Lamar's and yeah. you know public enemies of the world. Like like Kendrick Lamar doesn't just say racism is bad. Kendrick Lamar says American institutions, you know, like... Yes, specific ones, yeah. Codify white supremacy, like institutions like the police and the entertainment industry codify a culture of white supremacy. Like, like it's a lot more specific in its call-outs. I mean, like, Zach De La Rocha has a verse about... Eurocentrism in the American school system, right? Like that's yeah. that's not saying racism bad. That's not saying America bad. That's a mo- much more kind of it's a very nuanced yeah. point and very specific point. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I think that that again, as, as sort of keep coming back to sort of the, this sort of distinction of like the obligations of having a platform and the obligations of using that platform to affect social change. Because again, like with, with no platform, if I'm, again, even someone like me who has something of a platform, if I just turn off this mic and we're just chatting by ourselves, I can't have that much influence. And so I can sort of say whatever I want, like, but once the mics are on, once I'm recording, once we're doing these things, and certainly once you're like at the level of like, major artists selling like with uh, platinum records and stuff like there's a serious obligation there that if you're gonna say something you make sure that what you're saying is right yes and that you make sure what you're saying is good and that that this is sort of where where i've settled on this stuff is that like over where i've settled for now again like i've gone through so many different opinions on this over the years and i do not expect this to be my final one but like if you're going to make statements, if you're going to try to be involved actively and intentionally in these sorts of political landscapes, you have to both do the work and do the reading and make sure you understand the issues deeply and also show that you understand the issues deeply. Because otherwise, it's very hard to believe that you are a credible source. I think as an uh, addition to that, I would also say I am wary of any artist who seems to be speaking on every issue because the reality is there are a lot of issues in the world like way more good is done by somebody who is able to hone in and spend time and energy really understanding one issue than somebody who is trying to kind of scattershot all of the world's ills yeah Yeah, no doing the reading takes time and you know if if you're trying to act like you've done the reading on every single thing, you've probably done the reading on none of them. Yes. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you there. I think that seems like as good a place as any to leave this episode. Do you have any any more thoughts other than all musicians are bad and we hate them? All musicians and are bad. They should, politics is bad. Yeah, musicians should stay out of politics. Yeah, no, that's definitely what I have been saying. But yeah, no, I think... I mean, this definitely got moved in some directions that weren't explicitly about music, but, you know, I think, again, so I I do want to sort of be clear again for anyone listening, like, you know, Noah and I, we take our obligation seriously to be correct and to do good when we can, but 
we're also just two doofuses with a podcast. Yes. So, you know, grain of salt to everything we've said. Uh, be skeptical of everything we've said, both here and, you know, when we talk about politics in our videos. Be skeptical of everything everyone says all the time uh, when it comes to this sort of thing. But, like, you know, not not to the point that you don't... Tr- yeah, that's... I don't know that that's a good message to send, yeah. but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Be skeptical. I will also I will also flex yeah. that I do actually have some academic background in human rights theory. Sure, yeah. And journalism, but true, that true. does not make me qualified to talk about the yeah. black experience in America. And I talked a lot about the black experience in America yeah. this episode, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. So yeah, Noah is less of a doofus than I am, but no. still sort of a doofus. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's just like, I think it's easy to get caught up in and get really excited about and get passionate about like music, music inspires passion in people. And I think that's something that plays into all of this. And it's good to have that passion. And I would just say, if the music inspires that passion in you, don't just end that passion at the music. You know, yeah. go a step deeper. Don't let it just feed back into itself. Yes. Take that and put it somewhere more useful. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you, as always, for listening. I hope we ruined your favorite musician for you. Especially if it's Ted Nugent. <laughs> yeah, he is an activist musician. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone. Before <laughs> Bye. we open up that Bye. Pandora's box. Bye.